Hi, this is the Quantum of Podcast, Episode 2, brought to you by your host, Frank Wesley, connecting the worlds of restructuring, turnaround and insolvency, presenting you with insights, stories and ideas from the industry that helps to put businesses back on track. Quantum is a niche practice that specialises in advising a wide range of clients and now with six offices, we are one of the fastest growing firms in the UK advising in this sector. We're here today to talk about a very current hot topic, the recent changes in litigation funding and how this all might impact on the professionals in the restructuring and insolvency sector. I have with me Edward Judge, who is a solicitor and a partner with Erwin Mitchell based in their London office. He has extensive experience and knowledge of all areas of contentious and non-contentious turnaround and insolvency matters, and he regularly lectures on the subject. Edward has developed a wide client base comprising insolvency practitioners, financial institutions, major creditors and distressed companies, creating a strong reputation for dealing with difficult problems in a commercial and innovative way. So Edward, tell us briefly some more about your background and what you're working on at the moment. Thank you, Frank. Um, I've been a qualified solicitor for over 30 years. But before then, um, I've got a family firm, and I worked within that family firm from a very early age. Uh, I think my first uh, job was doing some filing when I was seven. Um, the family firm, called Judge and Priestley, uh, did a lot of commercial debt collection, which meant that I've been in involved in litigation nearly all my life. I did my first court case when I was 15 at a pretrial review. Uh, and I went to my first creditors meeting when I was 16. We dealt with a lot of small cases, which meant that it was very important to have limited costs, so the client had some sort of um, recovery. Uh, obviously, I've moved on from there now, and uh, here at Irwin Mitchell, some of my current cases uh, include a three million pound, pound fraudulent trading uh, case where a group of companies went into liquidation after a failed corporate voluntary arrangement. Um, that uh, group of companies failed to pay tax and therefore HMRC are very keen to see what recoveries we can make. I also have a number of large construction cases where we have some complex construction law uh, legal cases moving forward which require funding and a lot of input from experts. In addition to that, I'm dealing with a family from Nigeria who have a very large portfolio of properties in this country, and we're talking about uh, tr the trust, family trust and how effective that is. Some of my cases have CFAs. I, I dealt with on a CFA. Some are not. Some of my cases funded. Some are not. Um, and I act for both the claimant and the defendant. So I've got quite a wide range of um, work that I'm dealing with. Thanks Edward. You obviously started in the legal profession at a very young age and uh, have a great deal of experience and uh, it sounds as though the cases that you're working on at the moment suit the litigation funding issues perfectly being the topic of this podcast. So uh, moving on to the first topical question that I wanted to ask which relates to LASPO. So for the uninitiated listening. LASPO means the Legal Aid Sentencing 
and Punishment of Criminal Offenders Act 2015, a very catchy title. At the end of last year, Lord Fawkes announced that the insolvency exemption that had uh, existed until that time would end in April 2016, and uh, the end of that exemption took place on the 6th of April. So this has been a hot topic in the insolvency profession. What do you think the loss of the LASPO exemption will mean for IPs and lawyers going forward? Well, before I can tell you what the loss is going to mean, I need to explain what the exemption was in a little bit more detail. When you uh, deal with a case on a conditional fee agreement, a solicitor not only charges his base normal hourly rates, but he's entitled to what's called a markup. That markup is a percentage uplift in uh, his rates. Now, that can be anything from 1% to 100%. So, in effect, the solicitor can double his fees for working on a case to reflect the risk that he's dealing with. In addition, in order to protect yourself, you can take what's called after-the-event insurance. Um, that is a policy which will pay out if you lose and will pay the other side's costs. Now, if the exemption um, reflected the position that um, insolvency was one of the very few uh, types of cases where if you won, then you could reclaim the solicitor's uplift and the cost of the ATE policy from the defendant in, in addition to the normal costs order. The loss of that exemption means that you can no longer recover that uplift in ATE from the other side. Now what that means is that if you win a case, then whereas the day before the exemption was lost, you could have claimed the uplift in ATE from the debtor, now you can't do that. The uplift in the ATE can be very, very significant in cases, and it's not unusual for the after-the-event insurance uh, to cost many tens of thousands of pounds. Uh, and sometimes the uplift can be many tens of thousands of pounds, if not hundreds of thousands of pounds. It's therefore made a very big difference in those cases where you were likely to get the recovery from the other side. However, in my experience, those cases are relatively rare. Usually, the sums that you are um, issuing proceedings for are very substantial. And it's very often the case that the debtor doesn't have the means to pay even the, the full amount that you're claiming, let alone the cost as well. And therefore, there is usually, once a settlement has been reached, a discussion between the insolvency practitioner and the insurer and the, and the solicitor as to how the proceeds are to be split between them. And that usually will, um, will mean that the solicitor will not be able to recover his uplift. So as far as solicitors are concerned, and certainly on the cases that I've been dealing with, I'm not sure that they're going to make, it's going to make a lot, lot of difference for me. As far as insurers are concerned, they were always used to um, at least having the option of being able to recover this debt from the uh, other side as part of a settlement. But as I said, it, in a lot of cases, there wouldn't have been enough money to cover the claim of the solicitors um, and the insurer. Um, and therefore, again, they would have had to negotiate. So 
it is going to affect the very large cases against very um, uh, against companies and organisations that have got a lot of money, so that they will be able to pay the cost. It won't affect cases that tend to be smaller and against individuals who um, had limited some limited funds. That's a very comprehensive uh, outline of uh, what you think the exemption will mean. Whether the government was right in relation to removing that exemption uh, is the subject of ongoing discussion in professional quarters. Um, certainly it seems as though uh, the government, being HMRC itself, will lose out potentially as a result of the removal of that exemption, but uh, time will tell whether the government was right in its decision. So thanks for that. Uh, and moving on to litigation funding itself, uh, that is not a loan, but is uh, a non-recourse finance product provided by a third-party funder. There is even talk now that the CFA and the ATE model may not be suitable for future litigation cases. So taking all this into account, how do you see litigation funding evolving in the short to medium term? Litigation funding is evolving very fast. Um, obviously, we're now in line with other forms of litigation. And therefore, um, we can look into what's available. And we've always, always looked into what's available, not only for insolvency litigation, but for all other types of litigation. For instance, my firm does a lot of personal injury work and they require funding for a lot of their cases. Um, the work that we're doing in relation to the personal injury will, of course, filter through to the other types of litigation shortly. However, litigation funding is an interesting term. It's, it's difficult to see how, if you've got a litigation funder who's meant to be funding litigation, why should the solicitor then act on a CFA? Surely the litigation funder will be paying the solicitor on an ongoing basis. And therefore, if a case is funded, it should not be dealt with on a CFA. Also, a lot of the litigation funders as part of their package are starting to include ATE insurance. The, my view is that ATE insurance, through no fault of the insurance industry, has been quite expensive um, for, for what you get. And the reason for that is that not all, um, not all uh, cases are insured. The reason why motor insurance, for instance, is relatively low, although not many people think it is low, but I can assure you it is relatively low. Um, the reason for that is that everybody who drives has to have insurance and therefore the risk is spread between the good drivers and the bad drivers. Whereas, as far as insolvency cases are concerned, if it's a very low-risk case, then I'll, we won't usually take out insurance. We will normally take out insurance if the case is high-risk. This means that the insurers realise that they're only insuring the high-risk cases, and therefore the premiums are relatively high. If the funders either self-insure or they have a link with an insurance company and they say, right, we're going to give you a fee to insure all of our cases. Then you have a risk that's spread 
and therefore the insurer can bring down the premium. Um, so I think that, that the ATE policy is going to um, move forward or even disappear with the funders doing their self-insuring. As far as um, funding involve, evolving, that is moving very fast at the moment, especially in the insolvency industry. Um, funding has in the past been dealt with, or is now usually dealt with on a case-by-case -case basis and only if you're a claimant. Um, if you're taking the action and you're likely to recover money. Obviously, if you're a defendant, you're not likely to recover money, so why would anyone fund what you're doing? But there are some funders out there at the moment that are looking at portfolio funding. So if you have a insolvency um, case where you have a number of different actions, you might have 20 or 30 different actions, and you might have some actions where you're defending as well, that might be more appropriate in personal cases, then you will have a funder who will say, I'll fund all of the cases, I'll give you a sum of money that will cover the uh, legal fees for it and the experts fees for it, and then you can use that sum of money not only for the uh, cases that you're taking as claimant, but also to defend other cases, and there will be an agreed return for the funder. Now, that starts to look like a rolling loan, um, but it is packaged as a fund. Now, I can see in the future, I don't think it's happened yet, but I can see in the future, moving on from that, there'll be uh, rolling funds available for certain firms. So, for instance, a quantumite might have an arrangement with a funder where Quantum might say, we have this many cases, this many uh, separate actions in this many separate insolvency um, cases. Can we have a large rolling fund to cover all of the expenses in those cases? And can you insure all of those um, cases? And it may well be that an agreement is made that covers a firm's um, litigation um, requirements. Um, that's not available at the moment, but I can see that that seems to be the direction that certainly the larger funders are moving towards. The funders that tend to fund the smaller um, cases, I don't think will be moving towards that um, way of dealing with it. I think they'll keep dealing with matters as they are, because it means that they are quite flexible and can be, can be involved a little bit more in the decision making. Thanks, Edward. So do you think those developments are being driven by the funders or is it something that the insolvency profession is uh, looking to establish in order to simplify the administration of their uh, insolvency cases going forward? Well, I think uh, funders are always looking for their own USP. They're always trying to differentiate themselves from others and therefore, just as any other um, professional company, they're, they're looking to produce new products all the time and test them in the um, real world. Now, they, they're developing those products by talking to IPs and talking to lawyers and therefore what IPs and lawyers are saying is going to be reflected a little bit in, in what the products are. Now, it may be that IPs and lawyers aren't saying exactly the same thing, so what one product might be very good for lawyers, one product might be very good for IPs. Um, it, it 
it's just really what funders are willing to do and how that fits in with the requirements of the IPs and the lawyers. So in the real world, what I would expect to see is IPs and funders getting into bed together gradually, whereby um, they start to work together, taking small packages of insolvency cases into account, seeing how that works, and then if it all succeeds, then looking to spread the scope of that amongst uh, larger numbers of cases. That sounds sensible to me. When you, when you try anything, whether it's a, a, a portfolio funding or just funding per se, uh, you're always going to test it out on a small number of cases first, and then if that works, move it on to other cases. As I said, I'm not sure that the portfolio, the, the, the funding for actual firms of IPs is available as yet, but I can see it coming. Certainly, I've come across the portfolio funding in relation to certain cases, certain um, insolvent estates where they've got a large number of cases. So, taking that into account, can you see uh, insolvency lawyers having to adjust their perspective on how they uh, advise IPs? What, what do you think this all means for lawyers? Well, it's, it's going to mean a number of things. Firstly, lawyers have got to look at their products because obviously they haven't tended to move very far from CFAs in about eight or ten years now. And it's important, just as the a whole industry develops, the opportunities that the lawyers offer has also got to um, increase. I think that the increase of the number of cases that are funded, and it is only still a very small amount of cases that are funded, there's about 2,000 to 2,500 insolvency cases that are issued a year, and only a matter of um, a few hundred are actually funded, if that. So it's only still a very small percentage. But I think that where a funder is involved, the first thing that tends to happen is that there is more pressure on the solicitor in relation to his fees because the funder's profit is dependent upon the net return of the case and therefore the funder is very, very keen to make sure the net return is maximised by reducing anything that can reduce it. One of the things that can reduce a net return is the legal costs. So um, I think there will be more negotiation around legal costs. I think there will be more fixed fees coming in so that for a certain For stage, lawyers or? Yeah, for lawyers. For lawyers, right. Not for, don't worry, not for IPs. <laughs> um, no, for lawyers. I think um, the, the situation will be that there will be a fixed fee agreed for preparing an LBA, a fixed fee agreed for um, preparing... Do you want to just explain what an LBA is? Sorry, it's a letter before action. Thank you. So uh, it's the initial claim that you send to the other side. Then the next stage will be to issue proceedings. There may be a, a fixed fee agreed for drafting the proceedings. Now, these fixed fees won't necessarily be low, but the idea is that they'll be fixed so that you wouldn't get a surprise that you think uh, you have an estimate that something's going to cost you £10,000 and it actually costs you £15,000. The fixed fee will be a fixed fee. And we're already doing work on um, this in other sides of our litigation 
to work out a matrix as to setting a fixed fee for certain stages. It may be that not all the stages are fixed. It may be that if you get to disclosure where you're providing lists of documents or providing full details of documents, that, that may be something that can't have a fixed fee attached to it. But just like your fees have, have the ability now to be changed, Frank, where you can do fixed fees and early rates for certain things, lawyers can do that as well. There's nothing to, to stop that happening. So that's very interesting. And by the sound of it, you see that the uh, litigation funders will look to obtain full value for money in respect of the uh, legal services that are being provided and, and that will result in uh, efficiencies that lawyers will have to uh, put into place. Can you, can you see litigation funders also potentially driving down the fees that IPs charge in those cases as well as they look to extract the best possible return for their uh, risk investment? Well. As far as I see it, I don't think the IPs, on a, on a funded litigation, the IPs won't be charging before they share their money with the funders. So what would normally happen is that you'd win the case, you would get the sum in. Now, it, as I said before, it, it's not always the case, and certainly in the vast majority of cases, you don't get the claim plus cost, so you will have a claim. The, the funder will then take out what he's paid the solicitor as cost, and then the balance will be split between the funder and the insolvency practitioner in a pre-agreed ratio. Now, it's only then when the insolvency practitioner gets his money that he then will be able to take his fees. I don't think that the funding situations I've seen would, uh, would be a situation where the IP can get their money first. Now, it's going to be interesting to look at how the IP looks at his matrix and as to see what benefit he can get. Because obviously the solicitor won't be charging an uplift, so he will have lost the having to pay out the uplift but in, it, that's been replaced by the funder stepping in and taking a proportion of what, what comes out. So it'd be interesting to see in five years' time when we look at the history of things, what the difference is, whether the IP would be able to get more money or less money through doing the funding or doing a CFA with a solicitor. And it may be that CFAs come back in some sort of form. Then There may be a swings and roundabouts situation. The main advantages I see with the funding for the legal team is concerned is that obviously not only do you have a solicitor, but you have experts and you have counsel. Now, not every barrister will do work on a CFA. And therefore, if you are insisting on all work being done under a CFA, you limit the different barristers that you can use. My view would be that to have funding and the choice of any barrister you want to use will greatly enhance your chance of winning a case because then you can choose the barrister you specifically want. It may not be a QC in every case, may not be a QC in many cases, but at least it's someone that you know is working and is happy working and is not working on a CFA. Interesting.
lots of uh, food for thought there. One point that crossed my mind in preparing for this related to the medieval offence of Champerty. Do you think this is still a risk for litigation funders, given that they would have had no prior interest in the claim now being pursued by the IP? The, un the unfortunate thing about Champerty, which is um, to uh, make a non-party liable for the costs of the proceedings. So you, you'd have to lose the proceedings and then there is a risk that the person you were suing or the person that someone else was suing could get an order for costs against you. Um, that has, has for some time been the subject of great attempts to get rid of it because it is a very, very old piece of law and it still survives. Although it's very, very rarely used, it would be wrong to say that it didn't exist. But it is a relatively low risk. You should be careful if you are funding a case what you're doing. You should be careful if you're interested in the proceeds of the case what you're doing. And you should take legal advice on the steps that you take and the documents you prepare to make sure that you don't fall foul or don't risk falling foul of shanty. So as aged as that um, rule is, that is a risk really just for litigation funders? It's not necessarily something that the IP should be concerned about? Well, if the IP sold the right of action, but he's sold it on the basis that he's getting a percentage of any recoveries, then he's got an interest in the result. Now, then it is a very fact-intensive matter to work out whether there's a risk of champertus, and it will be different in every case. And it's, not, it, it's something that would take me a lot longer to explain than just the few minutes we have here. Okay. No, that's, that's great. So let's turn the debate to the insurance perspective. How do you think IPs and lawyers can better engage with the after-the-event insurance market? Um, as we know, this seems to have been largely handled by lawyers in the past, but the comment that I've heard is that IPs need to get a bit more engaged. Well, um, yes, you're right. It has tended to be the uh, lawyers that were engaged, that have been engaged to date. However, the insurers are engaging with IPs. They are there at our three meetings. They are, and, and at um, presentations put on by ATE insurers, there are more and more IPs at those meetings. The problem a little bit with ATE is that the way the insurance is set up, they are very reliant on lawyers. They're reliant on the lawyers giving their opinion as to how good or bad the case is. They're reliant on the application is almost always drafted by lawyers. The only way I think that insurers could get involved more with IPs or IPs get involved more with insurers is that if firms had their own block policy in some way that they could draw down on rather than in every case going through their lawyer to even to the same ATE or let alone a different one because it's only when you have a, a very good contact and a very trusting situation between the insurer the IP and the lawyer that you might be able to drive down the premiums. The, the insurers are after all simply 
putting a bet on their, their bookmakers. If they can see that the risk is lower, then surely the premium should be lower as well. Although it's not a mathematical result, if you're insuring £100,000 worth of costs and you've got a 60% chance of winning, then the insurance premium tends to be the 40% chance of losing, which is 40000 plus a bit of profit and plus a bit of tax. So you might end up paying fifty or £55,000 for an insurance policy to cover 100000 Now, that risk element is the interesting thing because lawyers will never say you've got a 100% chance of winning or a 90% chance of winning. The maximum you can usually get a barrister to say is about 65 or 70 and because the barristers know that the cutoff point is 60% for a lot of insurers a lot of them might start saying 55 <laughs> just to, to, because they know that the insurer may be relying on what they're, they're saying in their advice mm, mm. so um, it, it, that's why lawyers have to be involved because in order to get the, the risk the ATE insurers need to know what the risk of winning is no, that, that's, that's absolutely fair. I think in the current environment of accountability and transparency, IPs, I'm sure, will be asked at some point whether they secured the best deal with the ATE insurer and therefore their knowledge of that marketplace is something that they will have to improve, potentially. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the funders are doing self-insurance, so not even going mm. to AT insurers. They're just um, insuring it themselves as part of their deal. They say, we will we will self-insure. And it may be that some of the larger firms will start self-insuring as well. And you've seen that in practice? Uh, or is that a future, a future development? Um, I've seen in practice the funders self-insuring. It's difficult to see with the IPs whether they're self-insuring or not. Certainly I've taken a lot of cases where we don't take out an insurance policy. Now that, that will only really come into effect if there's a lot of assets within the insolvency estate which is at risk if we lose or if there's going to be an application for security for costs if there is an application for security for costs then the ip will would would or the ip firm would have to put money into court now habitually if if you take the action in the name of the ip then that ip's got a personal risk so if you're a trustee in bankruptcy or if you're a, um, or a liquidator taking wrongful trading action that is usually taken in the name of the liquidator, then um, when someone's asking for security for costs, you can say, well, I'm personally liable anyway, so I'm not going to give it. That would be a high-risk way to go. And if someone's talking about security for costs, people would normally then take out ATE insurance, which includes um, a security for costs policy. But it could just as easily be, security could be given up by the um, firm that's running the case. Yeah, I think generally IPs are a pretty conservative bunch. So the ATE policy is something that may well ex continue to exist for some time to come. So that's great, Edward. Good answer. Let's close this podcast off now. There's clearly no immediate fits-all solution for IPs and lawyers given the changing dynamics of litigation funding. It may well be down to the IPs, the lawyers and the insurance industry to devise solutions following the removal of LASPO, and we both await those with interest. Thanks, Edward, for inviting me to your 
palatial London offices in Hoban and your valuable thoughts. It was a pleasure speaking with you and we'll watch this issue develop over the next few months. I'll sign off now until the next Quantum of Podcast. Thanks for listening.